I think that there's more softness, humanity, rawness, immediacy, fluidity and kind of, yeah, impulse here than there can be in places where there's there's been a longer history of an industry. Welcome to Third Culture Africans, the lifestyle podcast for dreamers, thinkers and doers. We celebrate artistry, share stories from those brave enough to create something and succeed, listen to diverse perspectives on African success and those shifting the needle on culture. I'm Zezo Sal, your host. On this week's episode of Third Culture Africans, my guest is Trevon McGowan of The Guild Group. She is a conduit and a storyteller of design who is on her life's work's mission to finding beauty in Africa and commercializing that for the world. She's an incredible community builder and a firm believer in passion, authenticity, and putting out great work. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did sitting with Trevon and all the gems that she dropped. Well, thank you, Trevon, for joining us on this week's episode of Third Culture Africans. Thank you very much for having me. I think you are, I want to say, the design expert of Africa. A lot of people who are in the design industry would know exactly who you are. But the average layman has no idea about you, but probably has bought or come into contact with a lot of the work that you've done in the last two decades. You run the Guild Group, which comprises of about 12 companies, and we'll get into them. But my first meeting with you, I want to say, was probably in 2011. Right. When you were, I guess, still very hands-on with Source. And you were sourcing for anthropology at the time and had put Malay forward. And we started having discussions around things that I knew nothing about. <laughs> because, because like most, most uh, small businesses from Africa, the idea of going global and stocking in big retailers, etc., just wasn't a part of my ecosystem were just my consciousness at the time and you are one of the first people to make that clear I want to say 10 years in now and what I would do to have that relationship with anthropology knowing what I know now (laughs) but you've put a lot of African brands design art objects in western homes all around the globe Um, and I want to say you are perhaps responsible for the Afrocentric or African aesthetic that we see in the mainstream, whether that's Amara or in the Conrad store or in any of the other stores. And and that's just the tip of the iceberg in terms of your achievements. Oh, well, thank you for saying that. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's a, a, a grand title to wear. But yeah, we've been, we've been working with African design for coming up 17 yeah 18 years even so it has been it's been a long road and there's been a, a lot of changes in the industry during that time so it's been very dynamic and exciting to be a part of part of that growth and that development yeah I, I think 
very much about advancing African design and then taking it to the world is pretty much what you've dedicated all that time to. Yeah. I mean, you know, I had come from South Africa. I grew up in Johannesburg. I was born and grew up in Johannesburg. And I left for England when I was still a teenager to go and study. Um, And it was 20 years before I came back. But that kind of gave me an understanding of what was missing in the outside world that I felt was very relevant and available here. Um, and, And somehow straddling the two hemispheres and the two continents gave me the, the ability to be a conduit, really, to, to allow to allow that, that knowledge to inform the work that I did in this country and also to be able to broadcast what, what was happening here to other people around the world. This podcast is sponsored by Malay Natural Science. Malay's products are inspired by the rich landscapes, alluring scents and ancient wisdom of Africa. Their luxurious fragrance and body care range balances 100% natural active ingredients and scientifically proven formulas to heal, protect, and pamper your skin. Malay ships worldwide, and you can buy their products at maleeonline.com. They also offer a free sample if you'd like to try. So I guess delving into that time, would you say, I guess, living in London, you would still go back to South Africa, you would see these beautiful pieces, objects, brands, etc. What was the defining moment for you to go, hey, but I want the rest of the world to know about this too? I had an, an architectural and interiors practice in London and was coming back to South Africa because my family was still based here and sourcing product for private clients. But there was this sort of turning moment when um, I was newly married and we had two small, very small children. And we were on a holiday going along the the garden route. And we ended up during the course of two days buying a property. We weren't planning on moving back. And we certainly were not planning to move back to a place called Wilderness, which had about 2,000 people (laughs) in it. Uh, But it was this real, I had a real connection and longing to live by the sea one day and my husband just sort of said well let's do it now and so we literally bought bought a house and, and after 22 years in, in London we were moving back uh, or he was from England so he was moving here for the first time um, and in in that moment of, of going back to London talking to my business partner saying we were moving back we had discovered a ceramics craft studio called Wonky Ware that was right along the garden route and I'd bought some plates as a present for my for my business partner and kind of thought I've never seen anything like this in England certainly and I thought I need to to show it to this you know one of the stores that I think is is best and I I showed it to quite a few boutique stores but the Conrad shop was sort of the pinnacle in my mind at that time this is the early early 2000s and I got five minute meeting with the creative director Polly Dickens in the foyer of the building and oh, as they do these buyers. <laughs> <laughs> well, she just sort of said, you know, I'd, she, I'd been phoning and phoning and phoning. Eventually she said, okay. And she came back from lunch and kind of walked through and I showed her the, and she had this instant click with the product the way that I had. And she said to me, actually, do you know, we've been trying to do um, the sourcing out of South Africa for a very long time. It's just too difficult, too far away, too dif- you know, too too difficult to navigate. And I went home, and well, and I said, well, I, well, I, I, I would like to see if I could do that for you. And I, I got home, and I literally remember sitting up in bed 
after I'd gone to bed that night and kind of went this light bulb moment of this is perfect. This is what I'm going to do. Uh, I had thought that we would have a much slower life and um, actually kind of re- retract from work a little bit, but this idea of finding these beautiful things that I knew existed. And so I came out to South Africa, did a massive trip, was buying for a lot of private clients and went back and set up a whole exhibition in, I lived in, in Clerkenwell in the time, so we had this big loft studio and, and just filled it with all of these products that were for projects and invited Polly and all of the buying team to come and see that. And that really was the kind of pivotal moment of, of changing everything when she said, well, as soon as we can get out there and we did a big buying trip all around the country and then d- did a massive show uh, called From Harare to Higavale at, at, the, in, at all the Conrad shops in New York, in Paris, in London, um, with this just assortment from about 40 different South African hand producers. So that was that was absolutely the launch of this new chapter. I've had three chapters in my career, in my life, and this was the, the start of the third. Amazing. I've written down in my notes, a design storyteller. I find, I guess, your body of work so far very captivating in how purposeful it's always been and very much purposeful in terms of interpreting the beauty that we all know as Africans and making it accessible to someone who has no connection to the continent but then they start to see it and value it in the way that it should. Has that always been conscious for you or has it just kind of evolved over time? I think that there was literally a sort of what a, like a stomach punch of where, of that, of realizing that moment. And, and from then there was this kind of passion unleashed that is that is undimmed. It has never faded in, in in all this time of a real connection to the mercurial nature of creativity as it links to this continent and how our makers and our designers and our creatives think differently. I think and behave differently. Um, and it is a, I genuinely see it as a, as a calling and as a as a privilege to be able to witness in all its different facets. And I literally have worked with a hundred more, well, hundreds of studios and makers and artists and designers and crafters and artisans. And I, every single time that I'm interacting with somebody, especially from, you know, if it's just, if I'm in their space and I can be a part of that creative experience to just be very uplifting and very inspiring. And so, yes, I, I I do want to tell those stories. And I think that that is where the future of design in general lies really is in stories and in, and is in connection with the maker and with the product because the world is filled with stuff, Yeah, you know. Yeah. Um, why, why should there be more? What is the reason for you to make something that has a physical permanence or impermanence, mm. uh, you know, and, and, and so it's become quite philosophical really and, and, and very much a practice for me. I always say with every guest on the show, their businesses or endeavors or what they create is beyond um, just a business or a means to an end. I, I find that every guest in their work, it's all about purposeful work and it's all about a story and I think it extends beyond 
I guess, the traditional view of entrepreneurship. And, and I, I wonder if that's particularly because of the Africa context um, and our heritage that makes us think differently or perhaps approach our ventures differently. Everything you do, whether that's Source, Southern Guild, Business of Design, Design Network Africa, the Woodstock Design District, all very much is about showcasing beauty, which I think is incredible and has always been, for me, I think I've always wanted to ask you this question, but never never had the chance to. So cue in the podcast and thank you for the opportunity. Um, but in your mind, when, and, and I know that, you know, through your entrepreneurial journey, there's been some wins, some failures, some things that you've learned from, and hopefully you can share some of that with, with some of our listeners who are in a place where they are creating. I've had people like Ufayong Gaumu and Eva Shanaide on the show. And what's clear is that within production, there's always this discussion around how do you price? How do you place yourself? How do you value what you're doing? How does that enter into the equation, especially as the conduit that you are, bridging the gap between these creatives, creators, designers, and the end consumer? Well, I, I think just to, uh, as a point of, of what you're saying um, around the people being, you know, the people that you're interviewing being passion-led, I think that's obviously also your your curation of people that you are you are making a collective of 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 people who care about deeply what they're doing rather than deeply what something can bring to them, um, and 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 that especially at a time like this is is so important. So uh, that that's the, probably the similarity. But um, in terms of if. If the question is around price and around how to guide people or where we sit globally, you know, we're, we're in two spheres, really, because for the quality of what we produce, a handwoven basketry or wood carving, beadwork, wirework, textiles, anything is at a very, very, very high quality. So if that work of a similar um, ability was coming out of say Italy or, or America or England, we are very well priced compared to those producers. But at a retail level, our pricing is very high. And our lead time is long because we're far away and the shipping time takes a long time. And we're not fat we're not set up like factories. There's a lot of home production or small studio production. Um, and also we can't really produce in the volumes that those very big mega stores. We've just done a big project the whole year with, with the last 18 months with Target. And although the volumes are perhaps the biggest we've ever shipped, they're tiny, tiny. Um, production quantities compared to their other uh, suppliers and, and factories. So we've got three very distinct, um, and, and so I'm saying, so even though we're cheap in compared comparison to those other places, we don't, like Italy or, 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 or uh, America, we don't really compete on the main sourcing countries and areas of the world like Asia and India um, for, for the American markets. So we're, we're priced high, our vo our, we've got a long lead time and our products um, are available in, in limited numbers. So those are challenges, but the pluses are that our stories are so incredible. The 
quality, the heritage of the craft, the variety, the fact that we're nimble and agile can produce sampling very quickly. In very, you know, you need very minimum numbers to be able to completely develop your own range. So there are plus and minuses um, to both sides. At a higher price point level like Southern Guild, we at a collectible level are still very, very well priced in the market. We're, we're becoming much more well known and we've had auction prices that have reflected the appreciation of the work. But I'd say we're still very kind of, um, we're still a, a low price, high value item at that end of the market. So it sort of straddles different places at, at different price points. Fantastic. You mentioned something which I think was one of our earlier discussion points when with Source. Um, I, I started off supplying hotels, so I knew nothing about retail, but knew everything about producing in volume. And so the quantities were never an issue. It was more around the workings of the industry, which I think within our communities, and also because there's so few players who are able to even enter into the marketplace, um, as you mentioned, whether that's the Americas or um, Europe, etc. Your passion around empowering and uplifting the creators, creatives, brands, etc. that you work with, is that in a bid to create an industry? Because I think in fairness, in, on a global scale, we are lacking, as you said, as much as there's growth, the work that you do is so important for that. I think when I first started working back in sort of 2003, 2004, there wasn't really an industry per se at all. And um, producers were um, quite kind of siloed and isolated. What was a big um, progression for that was obviously the Design and Darba Expo, uh, that was an annual event that brought people together and gave them a sense of community and belonging. But it w was really, there was a very fast acceleration from about 2005 to 2012, 13, when we were, um, it sort of became an exciting, young, entrepreneurial, artisanal environment. And a lot of makers moved to Cape Town, actually, from Johannesburg and Durban and other parts of the country. There was a coming together in Woodstock, which is why we launched the, the Woodstock Design District map, because we were claiming that as the area in the country that had the most highly dense, densely populated artisanal um, residency and, and studios and things. But obviously, a lot of work is still rurally produced. And that is a very, very important part of, of, of our identity as an industry. You know, the different factors that, that brought about a real sense of being an industry, Watershed has, Watershed at the, at the V&A Waterfront has a uh, huge... I was going to get to that. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to get to that. I was thinking, how does it feel that... Your work is a tourist attraction. Just <laughs> well, look, that it's, in itself is something. I mean, we're we're very much just a cog in the machine of bringing those players into one space and under one roof. And and the VNA were very visionary and understanding. Oh, no, but it's true. It's the VNA really understood that this was going to be the next wave of how to connect, especially with foreigners, but also locally mm. of placing people who were making things themselves and it, so it was very mm. personal work 
in one environment. So there's you know, 150 traders there. And it was that was a real changing where rather than just doing pop-ups or markets or an expo, that people, um, design studios were retailing in their own spaces 364 days a year. And that gave a real shift and a real influx. And then the museums opening, the the, the, the novel and, and, and Zeitzmacher brought yeah. a lot yeah. of foreign um kind of curators and of creatively focused people and gave again a lot of confidence and buoyancy to the art market the creative market retail restaurants cafes and i think so so there's been this massive escalation i think that the um cape town being the world design capital was also a real um motivator and a kind of rocket of acceleration although you know there are people that say things could have been done differently there i think that without it we would definitely not be where we are at the moment to take a pause on on giving you your your roses and flowers <laughs> to smell them i think that is an incredible representation of the work that you've been doing over the years and just how you've always worked hard to make it accessible I have in my notes, do you have a passion for events and community? Definitely. I mean, I think that that's, if I look back on the first thing we actually, 2007, we did something at um, Rooms on View in Johannesburg called South Africa House. And we went out to, you know, such a wide, wide variety of producers, people who are making baths for bathrooms printers, you know, metal workers, just all sorts of people. It was actually the start of, of Southern Guild, really. But it was about this collective and about bringing people together. And one of the largest shows we did was um, had 250 pieces in it with over 120 artists participating and designers, which was the launch of the design museum in, in Johannesburg, well, in Maboneng. And then we did Guild Design Fair for the design capital in, in the waterfront in, in Cape Town in 2014 and again in 2015, inviting galleries from around the world, the top galleries from New York and London and Paris to participate. And what that really the motivating factor behind all of this is about collectives and community and collaboration. And we do a huge amount of work with other galleries and studios, other designers from overseas where we produce their work here. And I do believe that the more connected you are and the more generous you are with your information and your collateral and your connections, the better you serve humans, really, but but specifically your industry that you are committed to. So I do have a passion, and we have we have big openings. We're very kind of celebratory every time we open a show. There's lots of you know booze flowing and conversation, yeah. <laughs> and they go late into the yeah. night. It's very different from a a more staid traditional gallery opening, really. And it is I I I enjoy the celebratory aspect of it. Now, a part of, I guess, your journey, and, and I find this mostly, um, you work with your husband. How do you juggle that? Um, it's actually our, it's, it's our 20 year wedding anniversary in two months time. Yeah. Oh, congratulations. <laughs> and, you know, we both come, Julian was a theater uh, an opera designer in London and so from very very creative background and I had as I said been in interiors before that um, and so we have a very quick and shorthand understanding of the visual 
we're obsessed with looking at things. And if we travel, the hotels we stay in, the shops we go to, the, the, the museums we visit, it's, it's, we're very, very connected on that visual understanding and, and shorthand. But we're very different in the way that we work. Um, and we bring something very different to the, to, to the collaborative um, as, aspect of working together. We also have five children. Um, so yes, I was about to get to that. So you've done all this with five children. <laughs> so it's a busy, it's a busy home and it's a busy um, relationship. But what we- I, I need all the tips I can get. <laughs> I have one and I'm barely surviving. <laughs> well, one's harder than five, I can promise. But the the you know on our day to day working environment, we take care of different parts of the business, um, and you. It's much more, uh, much more creative, really, and also very interested in in the propulsion and working deeply and closely with our artists. Obviously, with the curation of the shows, with the envisioning and the installing and the kind of, you know, the theater of the experience. Um, whereas I am much more around the business structure and running the team and HR and and communication and liaison with clients and and, and that. So we we work very well together looking after different aspects of the company. I must say that you've always um, struck me as having it together, Um, working as a unit um, and also just how effortless it seems. And I know that's because, and I've worked with you, whether that's through source or business, business of design, and how meticulous and and I think you have the ability to attract the team that's needed to be able to execute these visions um for a lot of entrepreneurs, the question and you know we read a lot of these books that say, "Oh, you know you need to build a team, et cetera and I know that you've been able to do that successfully more than once. Are there any tips that you can share on? how I guess what's your process in doing that how you do it what do you tackle what are you looking for yeah you know that's one of those white elephants right the team (laughs) well I mean it's very kind of you to say it looks effortless it definitely isn't um that would be the thing we're going for is that I always say you know to be like the duck I think the role that between our clients and the, and our artists is that we the, the legs need to be furiously going under the water but on top of the surface everything is as calm as can be and you know I do have a very we I we have a very strong team but we've we've got a reduced team now we I would say I learned I I, I had university business schools because I'm not I'm not trained in business at all um so we started very very tight and very tiny we were based in wilderness we had a team of three or four people there one in Joburg one in Cape Town so it was a tiny team and actually we put we started a lot of the platforms DNA does um business of design design foundation workshop Newtown a lot of those projects and platforms with a team of six or seven of us. So very tight for a very long time. And then into almost being remote somehow prevented us from, from, from building the team. And then in 2014, when we moved to Cape Town, we went from no physical gallery, no leases, no, because we worked from home, no property, um, six staff to 36 staff, eight leases, 
three galleries, four retail spaces. You know, it was just insane. I'm having anxiety just on that financial commitment to uh, Well, exactly. And so we we exploded through the ceiling and for three or four years we were working at a expenditure and an art flowing at at a time when we were actually still experimenting with what does a gallery need to be what is a retail space what is it so it was a very fast very extreme very hard lesson and we lost a, a lot of money and lost a lot of um, confidence and it was you know it then took us a year or two to dismantle ourselves out of that we are now a team of about 20 people and we are focusing very clearly on what we where our passion most lies what we feel has got the most uh, longevity and where we feel we can add the most value for for the people that we work with um, and the core team that have stayed with us from the beginning and that have uh, and the new people that have joined I think the to, to, to go back to your question around what, what how we do that is we're very, very close friends with the people that we work with. With a, with a lot of them, we're very intimate. We are predominantly women. Um, yeah. we, we, there's uh, my son is in the business as well, and and Julian, oh, wow. and so they're they're about fifty percent. <laughs> Yeah, they're about fifty percent of the male staff, um, and the, <laughs> um, <laughs> but but it's it's about yeah. authenticity, very hard work, being spreadsheet obsessed, and that commitment to quality. We really don't want anything that isn't a one thousand percent quality leaving the organization. The places that kind of make me want to you know be slightly sick are the times that I think back to where we were unprepared or we tried to wing it or we let people down oh Um, goodness you're in my list of of oh if I was if I knew more then what I could have done with that opportunity (laughs) (laughs) I think very much very much so in in terms of Having the time, right? I think there's something in what time gives all of our businesses. And I think having a global African business is not easy, especially when you're not a commercial face in that sense. And you are, for the for the large part, behind the scenes. Like what people don't realize is if you walk into Anthropology or the Conran shop or any of your online interior stores, and you find an aesthetic that is somewhat African, chances are it came from you. And if you are in Basel or in Dubai or at Maison en Objet or PAD, and there is a stand that is showcasing African talent, that's you. And what that takes for two people to achieve, and now that you've said a team of six, I feel so much better because... I think in the beginning I had an insecurity around having such a small team and having grown a team and realizing I didn't need it. But what that takes to do is sheer hard work. There's nothing pretty about it. There's nothing fancy about it. Um, But consistently doing that to the level that you're doing it um, is incredible. I think it, it, I'm hoping that this episode really gives our listeners a chance to, to go out and look at what the behind the scenes of doing 
doing this sort of thing, whether that's putting Africa on the map through what you do, um, how that feeds back into the ecosystem. Um, I think what you and Julian have done is a blueprint for even myself um, when I look at, okay, but how do we scale? How do we do this without compromising on the facets of the continents or our culture that I believe in or that I would like to invest in? And I think through all of your projects, you've been able to do that without feeling confined, I think. And you've tried retail and you've tried a lot of things in that process, but successfully so, always just been able to focus on passions, which I think is incredible. How you fund that, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, she's with a lot of loans and a lot of debt, but I think the thing is that um, if I've learned one major lesson from this very, very painful, you know, uh, process that we went through, and, and, and and I have to say, I'm very happy where we are now. I'm very confident. I feel like we're completely on the right track. But a couple, you know, it, it took going through the dark nights of the soul to actually really get to where we are. And I would recommend anybody who is at a smaller place with a few people in their organization and they, they sort of think, oh, I, I know where I want to get and I need to, to, to scale. I need to get lots of people. I need to, to, to do this to, to grow. I would say the first things you need to do is to get your systems and your own practices one million percent sorted because you think that by adding outside people, they're going to come in and do it for you. It actually just creates more chaos. You need to create those own systems because you know your business best. And then slowly you see where is the place I need to bring a one person, another, um, rather than the sense of, okay, let's just like kind of try and build this place and, and bite off too, too more, too bite off too much than you, than, than you can chew at the time. So that's kind of the, the wisest thing. And now we, I take a very long time before I hire anybody. I, um, you know, sometimes we'd be looking for a person for up to, to two years and we still haven't found the right fit because I just don't want to go through that process of, of not being sure. And of also maybe, you know, putting up somebody into position. I found it traumatizing hiring. For me, it's, it's a grueling process. And in the beginning, you feel like there's this pressure to, to make a decision, like you're saying. And then there's nothing worse than having the wrong person in a role, um, especially when you have and your business has a low tolerance and appetite for mediocrity. Yes. And often it's not even that person's fault. Often you've put somebody into a position that either that position isn't really formulated yet, doesn't exist, isn't needed, or you've hired somebody with strengths in other areas for the, you know, so it's just about real, real clarity and real soul searching around what you're doing and and, and getting your own ducks in a row first before, before anybody else coming in. I think that's just a great way of articulating it. And for anyone who's struggling with the idea of hiring and and that process, or even just the experience of having gone through it, with your approach to, I guess, African design and your pulse on what's happening internationally, I think we all battle with this local being inferior and and international being superior. How have you always combated that with with your work and, and what you do? 
We were very lucky um, and in the beginning days of, of Southern Guild, um, which is the collectible design gallery um, part of our business, and that was established in 2008, so that's about 11 years old, that we got quite a lot of funding from the DTI to take our designers with us to fairs to to Miami or London, Dubai, as you mentioned, Basel. And for those, for 15, 16 artists at a time to come with us and they would have their work showcased. These are you know, regarded as the most important fairs in the world. Only 50 or 60 galleries are invited to, to attend. They're very prestigious. So they knew that their work was being showcased amongst the best in the world and we would take them and, and, and walk around together around the fair and look at other products and say, Look at you have to have the confidence that you are here. Look at the excellence of execution of these products, how exquisitely they are made, and how, how you know the longevity that are that are there. But this is a calling to you to think even more strongly about who are you as an African, who are you as your as an individual, how did you grow up, what's important to you, what stories do you want to tell, how do you become deeply Person. I mean, that's how they work anyway, but it was an encouragement and a support of that process so that when we do showcase a collection of works from, from um, Africa, that they feel very different. There is a vibrancy and an actual kind of vibration to the product because they are made by hand. They're, they're telling pe- people's personal stories. So they they sit apart from the, the work that might be more intellectual, more trend-driven, more kind of uh understandable from a from a from a historical trajectory perspective they feel very fresh and very um exciting and very there's humor and empathy and pathos and all these sort of things is is embroiled in our product and i think that as africans that's the that's the part of ourselves that we need need to mine and explore because we are very open we're very truthful um and we have very rich you know stories behind us so uh that's what that's how i think i combat the idea that we you know we can't be a campana brother well like although i must say the campana brothers actually fit into this the category i'm talking about um you know they're brazilian and they have a, a similar kind of backstory in terms of the way that they make and the stories that they tell but i mean a, a, you know a, a, a gucci or a you know something that is much more polished and corporate and sophisticated and, and and but somehow also slightly more closed off and less accessible um, is how we, I, I suppose how we how we show up on the world stage. We sh- we show up as we as we are in our own context, and that's how we how we address the issue. Would you say corporate is the difference that that these these industries are, or even these businesses are, are corporatized, and we lack that? I mean, we obviously have certain um, uh, industries in this country are very corporatized, the finance one for one. But I think that I think that there's more softness, humanity, rawness, immediacy, fluidity and kind of, yeah, impulse here than there can be in places where there's there's been a longer history of an industry and of factories and of, uh, you know, number of people employed and therefore things have to be regulated and, and formed a little bit more with more structure around them than, than, than we have. We have the opportunity to be a little wilder, I suppose. How do you decide who you, who you reach out to, who you back, who you support, who you curate, or, or I guess what's your curation process? It's incredibly instinctive and we try and 
work with people who nobody else in the world could have made that thing that they just made. Somebody could try and copy them or somebody could, you know, there are people, but in essence, they have made something that is distinctly identifiable as theirs. If it's a Porky Heifer or Delia Dilvani or Dr. and Mrs. Zizi Poswa, um, Stas Trebinsky, you know, all of these people are making work that is so personal that it can't belong to anybody else. And the techniques and the processes and the way they make it is their way. And so we find people who we are who are unique and, and, and also who are exciting to us. And again, we're very close and very friendly with a lot of the artists that we work with. It's a very human family-like interaction. Um, and, and, and authenticity, connection, longevity, all of those are the are the are the most important things. Trust. Um, I want to be doing this till till I really can't stand up anymore. Um, and so does Julian. I can't imagine that, oh, we're going to retire at 65. I think this is something that's going to lead us through the rest of our lives. And we want to be working. You know, the, the people that we started Southern Guild with are still, the, the, the majority of our core artists are the people we started with back um, in 2008. And I think that's a very exciting thing to be true. So well put. I've written down here, commercializing creativity for Africa. Is that too heavy? No, that's exactly right. Because artists and makers are not always the best people to sell their pieces. And they often don't even curate their work necessarily in the best way. And they shouldn't be thinking like that. They should just be free to make. And, you know, Porky Heifer will have books and books and books of sketches and ideas and just constant outpouring. And if he had to then think about, well, how do I shape this and how do I sell it and how do I package it and how do I price it? It's it's going to take him away from that freedom of thought. And our role is to protect the artist's um, creative process and to also build their credibility and their standing as artists globally. And so it has to be very commercially sound and very rigorous, very professional, very, you know, we have certificates of authenticity for the products. We're very mindful of the way that the work is priced. We escalate the work in in, in, in line with what the market um, uh, appetite is, but also the ability of the artist to create. And there are all of these, there's lots of different factors that we've, that we've learned and that we're rigorous at sticking to. So commercializing something to keep it pure is really what we're trying to do. I've written down here um, as close to a magician as possible, (laughs) um, but realistic, right? Because I think for a lot of the creatives that you support, I think for the first time you were able to abracadabra and, hey, here is your work being valued as it should. Do you see that in your day-to-day or is that just coming as you go? How how do you connect, you know, Zizi to, you know, the Los Angeles Museum of Arts or, do you know what I mean? Like it just, it seems your story reads so beautifully. And I guess for the lack of understanding what comes behind it, I think it would be great to hear from you in your own words how how that takes place. 
if we look back and we discuss as a team or Julian and I what what the various things are that have been achieved or what we did here or what happened there, there is a huge sense of pride and um, sense of fulfillment and, and, and um, gratitude really for the, for the opportunity of being able to do it. But I would also say very honestly that it is a collaborative process. So the artists have to trust us and trust what we're doing, um, work really hard, invest a lot of um, you know, time and, and finance into producing work to allow us to take it to the fairs globally. And, you know, Zizi will communicate with the museum, we'll take work to New York, we'll meet the, the curator there, then we'll go to Miami and we'll meet her again. And so it's a process, it's a long process of building up credibility and 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 networks and, and relationships. And you know, Zizi's offered a, a residency somewhere and then you have to find a way to facilitate that. So it's very much a give and take between us and our artists and they have placed faith in us and walked side by side with us th- through this whole process. And through that commitment, I think, and that authenticity is what is what made it, has made it possible. And fighting very hard, fighting very, very hard for, for, for you know, government investment at the outset. We wouldn't be where we are with our, um, with our standing on the, in the global um, fair. We are now, you know, Design Miami this year, we finally moved to the very, very prime center of the fair, the most important booth, I think. I mean, and, and it took, took 10 years uh, of, of showing up, paying the, the, the costs to, to do that. But if you stick at it and you're dedicated and you, and you just don't give up um, and you're authentic in what you're doing and you're passionate, then, then, then lucky things start happening, I guess. I think um, your work to me has always spoken of hard work, less luck than, than that, because I, I've seen how hard you and your team work. And early on, I think one of the first markers for me was these guys aren't playing, you know, the, the benchmark is what you've created um, with all of your businesses. And unconsciously, I think as a culture, we're all following that without realizing, I guess, the mothership <laughs> who laid the foundation for a young artisan, creative designer who's thinking of how to navigate, I guess, the business of design, um, which is your specialty. What sort of tips or advice can can you share with them? I think it just it goes back to the themes we've been discussing already, which is be true to yourself is the first and foremost thing. Why why does this world need anything more unless you're going to add something important to it and something that only you could make? So it's be incredibly true to yourself. Keep questioning: Is this as creative as I can be? Is it as original? Have I copied anybody? Does the world need it? Those kind of very true hard questions incredibly hard work building slowly there can be nothing to be said just hours I still work every night I mean you just you just there you you have to work really super hard and and this break that's happening to the world right now is very healthy and very fantastic and hopefully we can slow things down a bit are you taking a break no (laughs) No, I was going to 
tidy a cupboard. I'm sure I was going to be able to tidy a cupboard, but now I'm working. I'm working the same amount of hours, if not more than before. I mean, what's lovely is that I'm home and I can have lunch with my boys and I can look in and see, you know, that I've got each one in a different room on a different, you know, uh, school lesson. But, and that's very lovely actually. And maybe I will work a little bit more from home, but I think just, I think that hard work, being true to yourself and looking at what the world really needs are the three things I would say. We don't need another thing. Yeah, we don't need another thing the same as that thing and that thing and that thing and that thing. Come up, you know, do it differently. And where can anyone, I guess, find you? Obviously, for anyone who's ever been to Cape Town and somehow stumbled across the V&A uh, watershed design market, uh, you know, <laughs> chances are or stumbled across certain, the gallery. But where, where can we find you from here or any of your ventures that, that you feel are relevant? Well, I, I mean, we've got, we've, we've got a fantastic uh, head of communications, Kelly Berman. Um, uh, she's our, our, our comms director and she, on, on Facebook and Instagram and our newsletters, you can sign up to our newsletters on South, uh, Southern Guild newsletters uh, on, on the website. Um, but you can always send information if you've, got, if you've got great product. We are very, we made a decision on our 10th birthday with Southern Guild to focus very much on our core artists, but but we're doing lots of projects. We're doing the most incredible um, lodge up in Botswana at the moment for a client who it will be the biggest collection of African design in the world. And every single thing has been made by artists by hand, every piece of furniture, the, the bed linen, the crockery, the glassware, everything for this very um, exclusive, beautiful, beautiful lodge. And so we do a lot of projects. It's called Kitchera, by the way, and it would have been open now. Um, well, it would have been open on the 1st of June, but it would. Uh, uh, so it'll be open soon but um i would just say that we're always interest, interested in who's making what we might not be able to work together in the immediate future but always send information through and i will always help point somebody in the right direction if there's somewhere else i think might be better for them amazing well trevin thank you so much uh for giving of your time and sharing as many gems as you did uh, i think you 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 articulated and shared beautifully your journey um, and I look forward to seeing more of your magic in the world and um, thank you so much. Thank you it's been a real honor to be interviewed and you said incredibly kind and generous things which is so nice to hear so thank you for that and thank you for for having me on this and thank you for what you're doing because I've looked at and, and, and listened to some of the podcasts and looked at the people that you're interviewing and you know you're doing a really really important job so thanks Zizi. thanks Trevin thank you thank you for listening to this episode of third culture Africans the lifestyle podcast we would love to hear from you so please find us on Facebook or Instagram at third culture Africans and leave us a comment a review goes a long way in getting our show notice so please leave us one if you enjoyed this episode and we'll see you next time oh, oh, oh.